Tonight's subject is conversation, and this goes actually to a certain degree along with the last one. So there's a bit of an interregnum. So remember we talked about the art of letter writing. It's important in self-expression and how our education system sort of systematically disables us from being able to write letters uh, because of the emphasis on other aspects of education rather than self-expression, uh, clear and free writing, and easy thinking. Um, so conversation will be a, in a similar vein. We'll talk about uh, why it's important, who's, who it's been important to, uh, what it is, and then where we are today um, in a society as far as conversation goes, which is to say not a very good place, uh, and, and what that means. So, uh, conversation. What is conversation first? It comes from the a Latin, t which means basically to live with. Uh, literally, it means to turn over with, but it means to live with to share with, to commune with. Conversation needs most importantly to be understood as a sharing of thought and an exploration of thought. Um, conversation is, is unique in, in the humane arts and the history of letters. If you look at it, we think of writing and reading, letters, um, all the you know, painting, all the plastic arts. Conversation is unique in that it's a shared undertaking. You cannot converse alone, or at least you're not supposed to converse alone. Uh, that's not, not really the point. Uh, you, you, you converse with somebody else. It requires a group. It's a cooperative venture. Uh, the idea of conversation is to cooperatively explore ideas, emotions, feelings, and to arrive someplace or to have realizations that you otherwise would not be able to. It actually requires other people to help build something or create something which on your own or on the other, the other participants own, they would not be able to arrive at. It's a way of externalizing cooperatively. So it's a very tricky and difficult skill. We'll talk about why that is. But, but this is the key. It's a cooperative undertaking. It's about exploring and discovering and building with other people um, and it's, it's a, about sort of the new, again, I think exploration is maybe the best word that we have in English to approach this. If you look at the history of conversation, I mean, basically, Western tradition starts, if you want to think about it this way in many ways, with the symposium. Famously, many of Plato's writings that feature Socrates are, in fact, symposiae which are drinking parties, ladies and gentlemen. I always love, I love the word symposium because it sounds so great, but what it is, it's a drinking party. But if you read Plato's symposium or any of his dialogues or most of his dialogues, and I really recommend particularly the symposium, what's clear is they had all kinds of rules. It was considered very poor form to get too drunk to drink too much because this disabled, of course, this disables your faculty of reason. In fact, at the end of the symposium, they all get smashed except Socrates. It's one of the points of the symposium. As Socrates is the one who retains his reasoning faculties. This is what's outstanding about him. He never relents. Everybody else goes along, goes along, goes along. But if you look at the symposium, Greek world, the whole entire Greek civilization was built around these modes of conversation. What we have surviving are the written materials, which are important to us, not nearly as important to them. They did not put a high value on the written material, which is, of course, why so little of it survives. 
They put a much higher value on the conversation. Uh, the next big one that we have is, is from uh, probably the French Enlightenment. I mean, if you look at the Renaissance, the Renaissance had the whole Castiglione the Courtier, which is the big book on Renaissance morals and behavior. Is uh, Half of it is about how to talk to people, how to present yourself publicly so that you can be a pleasant person to speak with. Um, then you have the French Enlightenment, which uh, the famous you know, salons of the French Enlightenment, Voltaire being perhaps the preeminent exponent of this. Again, we remember Voltaire for his works. At the time, Voltaire was famous for being Voltaire and talking at parties and being uh, both, both witty and this just scathing intellect. Um, and so, uh, it, it, again, conversation doesn't survive. And so we sort of, at the time, if you ask people why they like Voltaire, they would say, oh, he's this great wit. And they say, have you seen any of his plays? Said, no, we're not going to plays. A lot of people just didn't go to plays. They sort of said, yeah, a little bit low class, D-class A. But they might have read them, but mostly they've been talking to Voltaire, which is the most fun thing to do. Um, then you can move to something like uh, Fond de Sacla Vienna, where uh, so, uh, Café Society had raised the art of conversation to, you know, some people argue perhaps its greatest moment in history, um, until, of course, it was wiped out by the Nazis uh, and the Anschluss, right? Uh, and, and this is important, a historical moment. Um, the first people that were arrested by the Austrian Nazis were the Café Society people. They weren't political figures. They weren't, they were the, literally, this is absolutely true, is as soon as the Nazis arrived, the Austrian Nazis went immediately to the cafes, rounded these people up, and a lot of them were dead within 12 hours. So they were waiting. I mean, they were like, they had their list of who to get, and you'd think it would be this politician, that democratic leader, that lawyer. No, it was Polgar, and that writer, and this playwright, and that cabaret star, Friedel, we've got to get them. And the ones who got out early survived. The ones who didn't, they didn't make it for a week. Is it shocking? I mean, those are the people they want. They wanted the talkers. Get rid of the talkers. Um, but this is true all over the world. The, in, in Hinduism, the word Brahman, uh, maybe the word, even the idea of guru, which is very, we have, we're very suspicious of this idea in the West. Um, but for them, the whole connotation of Brahman is at the feet of. You learn by talking, you learn by seeing, you learn by interacting. Again, the written component of that was always considered to be of secondary importance. And in fact, if you look at uh, Hindu classical texts, what you almost invariably get, much like, like uh, the, the Talmud, is a text box about that big surrounded by commentary. <laughs> and you can see what they've done is they've created a conversation. And you have this scholar here, and this scholar here, and this scholar here. Literally, you'll have three or four different scholars commenting on the same text. And when you consider that those texts are often, you know, like the Ramayana, very long to begin with, I mean, they get, they're multi-volume. They're really big. Um, but they're big because it's all conversation. What does this passage mean? Well, this says this, and this says this, and this guy is commenting on what this guy, and this guy, and that guy's right. And this carries down for generations. Because in their tradition, the story is the beginning. And when you sit at somebody's feet, quite literally, they tell you a story, and then you ask questions. So the story doesn't stop. The story begins after it's been told. So that tradition is very strong. China has a, has a very similar tradition um, in many ways. And so it has been central for a very long time. Um, 
I'm, and I'm trying to think of just, I was trying to think of some famous ones, and I, I, I landed on probably Voltaire is perhaps the best known. Um, and letters, everybody wanted to have Voltaire at their house, basically. And so if you look at his life, he lived in his own space. I would, I, it's got to be less than half his life. Like, probably a lot less. For, for at one point, he went from a noble's house to the Bastille. Bastille hadn't been torn down yet, of course. Uh, the, back to, when he got out of the Bastille, back to a noble's house where he was then rearrested and went back to the Bastille. At what point, he went to a country noble's house. And then he got tired of that, so he went back to another noble's house in Paris. So I think for that four-year stretch, he never lived anywhere but somebody else's house. And he wasn't working for them. He wasn't a servant. He wasn't paid by them. He was just pleasant to have around. Everybody wanted to talk to him. And so they just kept him. Um, in, in our modern day, the, the person that sprang to mind was a, a, a gardener, actually, named Russell Page. He, he's written probably the most famous book on garden design called Education of a Gardener. Um, he also, he never had his own garden and almost never lived in his own house. He always lived with his clients, um, whom he didn't like to build. So he was a very curious garden designer, but the reason he could do this is because people really enjoyed having him around. He was just a pleasant person. Um, and so he, he followed a pattern much like a Voltaire, but this has fallen off quite dramatically. Um, so the collaborative element and the shared element has been important throughout history. Now, what does conversation do for us? So you have to think, in the ideal model, what is a conversation? Again, first, it's a sharing. If you look at these quotes, um, the first one there, uh, the true spirit of conversation consists in building on another man's observation, not overturning it. So, so this is a, one of the first things. Conversation is not supposed to be contentious. In fact, not only not supposed to be contentious, it can't be contentious. This is the interesting thing, not truly contentious. Because you can't build together if you keep knocking down each other's stuff. Right? So this is, this is one problem that we often run into. Uh, and, and Franklin's quote, as usually quite pithy, the great secret of succeeding in conversation is to admire little, to hear much, always to distrust our own reason and sometimes that of our friends, never to pretend to wit, but to make that of others appear as much as possibly we can, to hearken to what is said and to answer to the purpose. Right? Again... To, to listen, to question our own reason, and a little bit that of our friends. Not too much, but a little bit. Uh, and, then, and then to stay more or less on, on topic, on subject. Uh, the next quotes I like both, uh, particularly from Hesse here, is everything becomes a little different as soon as it is spoken out loud. I think this is the key place to start here. So we have an idea. We've been ruminating on something. We've been thinking about it. We've all had this experience, I'm sure. And then as soon as you try to articulate to somebody, you find out that either it comes out and you say it out loud and you think, wow, that's daft. Right? <laughs> that's a bad idea. Now that I've spoken that idea, I realize that's stupid. I'm going to take that back. Just ignore that idea. Or we realize that, well, that's not quite what I meant. And if you were with someone, a, a good cocker, a good conversationalist, well, they might be able to help you figure out what it is you think you mean, right? And, then this is, and this is a cooperative process because you say something and then 
All the other person says, well, do you mean this? And you're like, no, that's not quite it. Well, how about this? Well, no, that's not quite it either. And we'll, we'll, I'll give you a few examples of this. And in that process, again, you actually achieve a type of self-expression cooperatively. Again, that would be impossible for you on your own. You refine your ideas. You hear them coming back at you, expanded, changed, nuanced. You, ah, yes, that's, that's better. Or, oh, no, I see a pitfall there. Now I see I hadn't, hadn't thought of that. Sometimes it's something will occur to somebody, oh, it immediately comes back to you. Oh, yeah, that's not a very good idea. Or, or yes, that's a better, better way of saying that or thinking about that. This, this is the idea. Um, we're not good at this. You may have noticed this. I don't know if you have or not. <laughs> so I want to think about where we are and, 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 and what it means. Um, first, we talked a lot about education again last time, the, the trivium um, and, and the, the, the drive to self-expression. So people, again, if you go back to, to prior to the German education model, this is a big part of what education was. You learned speeches, you talked about speeches, you were required to give oral presentations, you're required to give spontaneous oral presentations later. Here's a subject, present on it. And then they would ask you questions, and then you would start this dialogue on any given subject. This is taken directly from the Symposium of Plato and, and similar writings from the Greek world, where they show up at the party, and I forget who, uh, who does start the dialogue? Anyway, I forget who starts the dialogue in the symposium, but he says, let us discuss love as a subject. And we'll start over here, and we'll work around the table. And everybody goes, great, we'll talk about love. And this begins this dialogue. The written form of it, of course, is not a great dialogue, because you can't, it's hard to write dialogue. This is one of the things we've discovered throughout history. But you do get the snippets of it, the, the, catch, the, the comings and goings, of what these people are up to, all the double and triple entendres and who's actually speaking to whom. All these elements are in there. So this was brought forward to the education system for several hundred years, if not over a thousand years, where they would say, okay, you're in a discussion class, a debate class to practice, and they'd say, today's subject will be, you know, the ethics of torture. Go. And so that would be your subject. And you would, and so there, you've got all this practice. I mean, literally, they practice learning to converse. Hence, they are very much better at it. Like other, everything else, the more you practice, generally speaking, the better you'll become. Um, other than the lack of the trivium, I think one of the specialty things in particular that, that kills conversation from an educational standpoint is our use of, of the true-false test and the, and the multiple-choice test. <laughs> I know that sounds, again, it sounds silly, but I, really, this is important to understand. If you see the world as a series of discreetly correct answers, you basically can't talk to people, <laughs> right? Because you go, there is a correct answer, and it's A, B, C, or D, or true or false. Notice what that does to your thinking. You go, well, one of these is correct, and it's about a sentence long, maybe. And if I find the correct sentence, then I am right. And if I do not, then I am wrong. The opportunity for, for your self-expression there is precisely zero. And the notion that you might be able to think about this question differently is completely undervalued. There's, it's, it's, it's ascribed no value. I, anecdote from my history, 
is I took a, a, one of those standardized, you know, statewide tests that you have to take when I was in high school. And um, one of the questions was, if the supply of milk increases, what happens to the price of milk? It goes up, it stays the same, it goes down, right? And I said, well, it's interesting. <laughs> of course, the silly idea is if you have a strict supply and demand theory, then of course you increase the supply, the price will go down. That's fine. However, because my mother owns dairies and my father was a commodities broker, I knew that milk is price supported. <laughs> and so it really, supply is very weakly correlative with the price of milk. And so I said, Correctly, as far as I was concerned, that the price would not change because, in fact, the price almost certainly would not change because it's under a quota and price, a price support system, which is inelastic. So I marked, you know, C, whatever, D, or B, whichever one was does not change. I marked that. Well, of course, we get the test back, and I got it wrong. So I protested this. I said, no, I think this question is wrong. And so uh, because of the type of person my father is, I, sh I showed up to him, and he said, well, I'll take care of that. <laughs> And he got me credit for the question, and he got the answer removed from the state test. That question no longer appeared on the state test. Now, but what's important here is, even if all I was given to give a short three-sentence response to this question, then you could say, under classical supply and demand model, the price would go down. However, if you're actually asking what would happen, we have milk price supports and quota, therefore the price would stay the same. This is not difficult, it, but it does require a certain amount of potential knowledge. When you have an A, B, C, D system, it says no. The world is discrete and clear, and it is not necessary to explore, reflect, or inquire. Right? It, it, just, it just kills that impulse. And if we had one multiple choice test, it wouldn't matter. If we had two, it wouldn't matter. The fact that you have it from kindergartners, they do, by the way, I'm not making this up, they now do standardized testing, multiple choice on kindergartners, which to me is boggling, but they do it. All the way through, if you, I took the graduate record exams, the big test you take to get into graduate school, it's all multiple, you never write anything. There's no essay section. It's all multiple choice tests. I'm like, what the hell are these people thinking? Anyway, uh, that's how we do it. So this is one problem. Um, the notion of making truth, correctness, discreet, unnuanced, simple. It, 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 it really prevents the notion of self-reflection, self-expression, and ex exploration. Dimensional things. Dimensional things. I, I want to explore the idea of what milk prices should be. I want to think about how this might actually operate in the world. That translates over in the way people think, and we'll talk about this. Second set of problems that we have is we, I mean, for good or ill, we're an unbelievably socially mobile society. We have almost no, not zero, but almost no social status that is given which on the one hand is great. This is the freedom our country was founded on. We do not have a church hierarchy. We do not have an aristocratic hierarchy. We do not have any sort of trade or uh, guild system hierarchy in our country. Excellent, great, wonderful, liberating. Downside, 
everybody is nervous about their social status all the time. <laughs> this is death for conversation. If you go back to the ancient Greeks, if you go back to Plato's Symposium, they all knew each other. They all had known each other for almost all of their lives. About half the people who were at this, that, that particular symposium had actually fought in wars together. I mean, they were intimately linked. They did not need to establish sort of an identity, who they were with these other people. They all knew who they were. They could relax. They could be comfortable. They did not have to worry about being excluded or being thought less of. Everybody knew them. If they thought less of you, they already thought less of you. This is Alcibiades shows up, and this is his problem. Nobody thinks very much of him. He's handsome, yes, but otherwise he's sort of demented. Uh, if you look at in France, aristocratic France, you were born. There you go. You're done. Congratulations. <laughs> Right? If, 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 if there's a great biography of one of the people I'm most interested in is this Talleyrand, this, this sort of unbelievable French noble dude. Uh, and they said, the thing you cannot forget about him is he was the family of Perignon, his entire life, the Talleyrand. His family name, his entire, everybody who met him, he goes, oh yes, I'm, you know, Talleyrand. Oh, well, it's just like a gold card to everything. <laughs> All of the nobility knew everybody. Even if they had never met you, all they had to know is your name. Your status is fixed. Absolutely. And here, here's what this means. It's the same thing if you go to uh, uh, Vienna, the Vienna Cafe Society. Who, that, this is the classic example of the demimonde. It was prostitutes, Jews, sort of grifter drug addicts, artists, intellectuals, political radicals. What I like to think of as the good people. Uh, <laughs> uh, gypsies. Their, communal, their community was built on the fact that everybody else in society hated them. It's important to remember, it was not just a positive association. It was also a negative association, which we're all here together because out there they want to kill us. And it turns out that they did. It, it was not a... a Suspicion, it turned out to be factually accurate. But so they all knew each other. The Jewish community relatively tight. The the uh, artist community, the cabaret community, the homosexual community, all these people were were drawn together but as much as they were driven together. And so they all had this notion they knew each other. So their status by society was basically fixed. They could not unfix them. And so they didn't have to worry about social status. We have to worry about social status. And here's what this means. This, this, the example I want to give here from actual, I'll try to use all actual conversations I've had. This one has happened over and over and over again. So I, I almost never see films. I maybe see a film a year, although probably not that often. If in conversation you ever say, you should see this film, and I say, okay, I'm lying. <laughs> right? I just say okay because then people stop badgering me about seeing film. I never see film. I, don't, I just, I don't know. I don't find them that interesting. Um, I've seen a couple films. Uh, and I don't have a TV. The only thing I ever watch on TV, which is usually at friends' house, is football. 
The reason I can't have a TV is because there's a lot of football on TV and I would never do anything but watch football if I had a TV. So I can't have one. I'm not responsible enough. Right. So people say, well, come to me and they'll say, oh, you know, party, whatever. have you seen this TV show? And I say, no, you know, I haven't seen it. And they say, oh, have you seen this one? And I think, well, you know, no, I don't see any TV shows, so I don't have a TV. And their immediate response almost invariably is defensive. Oh, well, I, I don't watch that much TV. <laughs> This moment. This is this is this is not communicating. Now, you have to go back. Imagine you're in, in Enlightenment France, and I'm at a party, and some nobleman comes up to me and says, "Ah, have you been to this brothel in Paris?" And I said, "Well, I don't go to brothels." You know, he's not going to be defensive. He's going to think, "Why not?" <laughs> Why wouldn't you go to, what a fool you are. And I can say, well, you know, I, I prefer to go after amateur women. I find them more exciting than professional. And then we can have this wonderful conversation about professional versus amateur, the thrill of the team. You know, all of this thing, it could be great conversation. But only if he doesn't care. And he's not going to care, I guarantee you. He's going to be like, well, that's each to his own, whatever, you fool. Uh, but, but that kills conversation. The moment someone becomes defensive, well, how come it's on the TV people watch? I mean, we can't communicate. We, it kills that opportunity. Rather than being able to, to discuss whatever might grow out of that. But because we're so consistently concerned about status, this is often what we're doing. We're trying to establish who's in and who's out. Are you with me or are you against me? Um, a, a great example of this, I was at the museum in Seattle and they had a Polynesian art display and they have a picture, I don't know if people have seen this, but they have a sort of a drawing of a Polynesian warrior from you know, back in the day. And he's covered with tattoos and all the tattoos mean something. So when you met a Polynesian warrior, if you were Polynesian, you knew everything about him because it's written literally all over his body. I mean, this is literally what it was. It's like, I killed these people. I killed six people over here. I did this test. I have this big of a family. I have this many pigs. You know, it's all, and it all meant something specifically that could be read. It was your status. You wore it. And so there wasn't, you know, again, status was fixed and visible. Uh, a couple of years ago, we had poets, poets against the war, poets against war. People remember this movement? Yeah. Um, and I went to their webpage. And right across the headline, which doesn't exist anymore, apparently they've let that lapse, because uh, I tried to look for it, but right across their, their headline of the webpage was a quote from, from somebody who I don't remember, that's why I wanted to look it up today. But the quote was, all real artists have always opposed war. Which is about the dumbest thing I've ever heard. I mean, that is really, really so historically ignorant, it's hard, it's not even wrong. I mean, it's like, wow, that's so far off. It's like this, I mean, because you have to throw out pretty much most of Greek literature, like the Iliad and the Odyssey and the Aeneid, and a lot of Latin literature, probably Dante, Shakespeare would be sort of borderline, some yes, some no. I mean, you, it's not true. Lots and lots of artists have been really fond of war. They've been in favor of it. They thought it was great and ennobling and wonderful. Now, so I was at a party at around that time, and somebody was talking about this, and I said, yeah, you know, I went to these people's website, and there was this just 
preposterous notion. I said, I just thought this was crazy that they've got splashed across their headband there. And the person said, oh, so you like war. <laughs> right? I see, so, so there it is, right? So this notion is, so you're one of those people. You're not one of us. Right? So the merits of the thing, now I could be totally wrong. I could, somebody could say, well, just name some artist who favored war. And if I couldn't come up with any, I'd have to go, ooh, well, that's a good point. Maybe you are right, right? Um, but because the original, the immediate response was, are you with us or are you against us? Are you on our side? If so, you, you can't say things like that. You can't question these things. If not, you're on the other side. It, it is this continual suspicion of the also the motives of other people. Are you a crypto Republican? Is Obama a crypto Muslim? Right? We never believe anybody what they say because we always are suspicious of well, what are they trying to get? What are they trying to do? What are they trying to establish? Again, this kills conversation, but it's in part because we're so worried about how we fit in society. Another example is from uh, de Tocqueville, the, uh, the, 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 the French nobleman who toured the United States. Well, he's back in France, the revolution and its many, the French Revolution and its many uh, convolutions is underway, and a friend, another nobleman who was a friend of de Tocqueville for his entire life up to that point, are writing letters back and forth. And they've had so many conversations, this actually happened in a letter, um, and they had been at a party and they had been talking about whether de Tocqueville should join the government, which at this point was Republican. And de Tocqueville says, you know, I think I should. I think that's the right thing to do. And his friend, who is, is pretty much an arch-reactionary aristocrat, says, no, that's absolutely the wrong thing to do. This is no problem. So they, they have many conversations this way. We have the letters, we have references to conversations. They've been arguing this out for many years. But they're best of friends. Until this guy at a party accused of Tocqueville of only siding with the Republicans to advance his career. De Tocqueville never spoke to him again. I cannot speak to someone who questions both my veracity. If I say I'm doing it for this reason, then you have to believe I'm doing this for this reason. And my motives. I am not trying to misrepresent myself for some third end. That is not it. If you accuse me of doing that, I can no longer be your friend, I can no longer speak to you. End of conversation. This is the thing. But we spend so much time, right, doing precisely this. Bless you. The other example I like is, um, so, by the way, we elected George Bush twice in this country. Well, at least one, one and three quarters time. But, but millions and millions and millions of Americans voted for him twice. All those people are not dumb. They are not ill-informed. Their motives are not suspect. They're reasonable, reflective, decent human beings. What we've tended to do is to say anybody who could vote for that idiot must be an idiot. And so it becomes a litmus test. Anybody who votes for Obama must be a socialist, nigger-loving, communist, fascist. Right? That's not okay. Now how do we talk? You can't converse. 
Conversing means I have to at least allow you the opportunity to say, you know, here's the reasons I'm voting for George Bush. They might be decent reasons. You might disagree with every single one of them. But doesn't mean the person is necessarily insane or wrongheaded or, or, or not deserving of sympathy. But we spend so much time trying to eliminate people, put them in boxes. But it's not entirely our faults. Again, when you live in a country where everybody comes to us with almost no identifiable status, how are you supposed to know who people are? Further problem with that is we have a situation of huge social mobility. We're always inundated with strangers. When you're continually dealing with strangers, this amplifies the problem of social mobility. Not only do I know not what your status is, I may not know you at all. The old letter of reference used to be the magic ticket. You had a letter that said, this is Wes, this is who he is, there. So you knew my status when you showed up. You would be a stranger, but I knew your status. That solves the problem. Or if we have a very loose social hierarchy, but everybody knows everybody, that solves the problem. But we have both very low social status, that's a sign from outside, and incredible geographic mobility. Lots of strangers, no particular way to figure out who they are. Now we use sort of money and wealth and tags like this as an ersatz attempt, but we all know it's a terrible way to do it, and yet we have to use it, right? How else do you know? So what do you ask people at a party, the inevitable question when you meet people you don't really know? What do you do? Yes, absolutely. I suggest making up crazy stuff. <laughs> right? I mean, but on one hand, it's, it's a sort of terrible question, but on the other hand, how, I mean, how else do you start trying to figure out who people are? That's what they want to ask. Who are you? And if, again, if you go back in the day, back to the Iliad, everybody's fighting. Two chariots pull up, and the first thing they say is, I am Wes, son of Tom, son of Tom, son of Tom, who did this and did that and did this and did that, and my brother did this and we did that, and my sister married this guy, and who are you? And he would say, I am Bob, son of Bob, son of Bob, you know, blah, blah, blah. And there's this great scene in the Iliad where this happens, and the two guys realize their families are friends. And so they go, oh, we better not fight. You go kill some Achaeans over there, and I'll go kill some Trojans over here. And so that's what they do. Because in announcing who they are, they discovered that their families were actually sort of interrelated, and so they should not ought to be killing each other. Right? But we, we have no system for doing this. We, it, and so again, we're free-floating. We also have incredible professional mobility, which just sort of ups the stakes again, uh, which means we don't know who could be our boss or who could be, right? Notice that we elect people from the general population to office. This is unbelievably rare. It means that anybody in this room should someday be the mayor, so theoretically I should say nice things to you. <laughs> Uh, right now, just at the college of Bruce Hattendorf, who was a colleague, decided he was sick of grading papers, and, and so he moved into administration. So now he's my boss, right? So all of the complaining I've ever done to Bruce about the crappy administration, <laughs> right? And now he's my boss. And I'm, so theoretically, I'm supposed to pretend like I don't believe all that stuff. Of course, it's not going to work. But, but 
But, we're, but this is not an at all unusual. This is very unusual both historically and even today somewhat in the world. You know you, your bosses are over here. If you're a boss, you're over there. If you're a worker, you're over here. There's not all this interpenetration. All these people who are moving up and moving down and, like I said, becoming elected office and all of a sudden, wow, this random person from your hometown you never liked, now you're a senator. Hope should have been nicer to them, right? And so this incredible social, in social instability makes us very hesitant in conversation because the question is, who are you? To have a means of self-expression you have to have a sense of yourself to express. And you have to have a sense that it is safe for me to express myself. So again, to go back to the symposium, there's a great speech by Alcibiades in the symposium where he says, look, Socrates, you are the only man who makes me ashamed of the actions that I carry out. Now imagine saying that with a front of a group of people, that I do things that make me ashamed but only in front of you, not in front of these other people, because they're just as rotten as I am. But, but you do that. See, we don't, imagine the level of comfort you have to have with those people to make a confession like, wow, I did this shameful thing. And I, I want to understand why I feel that way about it. Wow, you have to have an incredible level of comfort with people. But this is, again, hard to achieve. There's a, people, there's a Canadian show called Kids in the Hall. Anybody ever see a speaking of TV shows? I don't know why I saw this one. But start with me. This is years ago. I saw this years ago. But they, were, they did this skit where the two, three couples are over, of course, having the, the regular sort of middle class wine and snacks. And they start on this confession spree. And the first confession is, oh, you know, I, you know, I got a DUI. And, like, that's okay. and then that just gets more and more. And like, I slept with your wife. Your kids aren't your kids, right? And it just goes on and on. I drank human blood and the human sacrifice. And then finally, the one quiet guy says, you know that lamp you gave me last? I really don't like that lamp. And everybody goes quiet. And that's it. The party breaks up. And everyone's like, oh, shut up. Yeah, right? Because you can't say you don't like the lamp. <laughs> That's just, you can't, you can't get a coffee cup for a gift and go, oh, a coffee, what the fuck is wrong with you? <laughs> a coffee, you got me a coffee cup? <laughs> Hello? Right, you can't, how many people have gifts sitting at home right now that they don't have no idea why they have them? Or, you know, right, absolutely. <laughs> we have a whole concept called re-gifting. <laughs> Right? Which is to say, pass the useless, crappy thing on to somebody else. But you just have to wait for somebody to say, uh, no. Thank you. I'm not, I'm not checking that gift because it's so stupid. Right? But see, that, we can't do that because, oh, it would, it would somehow intrude in our social mores. It would upset people. And I can't afford to upset you. If what we're trying to do, which is mostly what we're trying to do in conversation, and, and again, listen to people. What we're saying is, you're okay, am I okay? Yes, you're okay, I'm okay. We're okay, you're okay, we're all okay. Great, you're great, we're great. We're good, we're good. Excellent. <laughs> now this is self-reinforcing. So if somebody says, have you seen a movie? And you say, yes. And they say, what did you think? 
say, well, I kind of liked it. And they'll say, oh, I kind of liked it too. Well, they're off and running. What did you like about it? Well, I thought it was a great movie. What did you think? I thought it was great too. What did you think was great about it? The movie part, the acting and stuff. Oh, that's wonderful. See, now, this is neither good film analysis nor particularly good conversation. What it is, though, is, is it's an agreement to build self-esteem, to recognize you're a valuable person, I value your ideas, I'm a valuable person, you value my ideas. And that's an important social function. Now, I'm not saying, don't get me wrong, that we need to do that, particularly when we deal with strangers all the time. It's not conversation. In conversation, I have to have the opportunity to say, you know, I thought that was this terrible movie. And you could say, no, I love that movie. And then, oh, really, why did you love that movie? And not be defensive about it. And just be able to say, oh, you know, here's why I thought this was a good movie. And then, oh, well, that's why I thought it was a bad movie. We could both be right. Anybody seen the Peter Greenaway movies that like Cook the Thief, The Wife is Lover, Prospero's books? Yeah, yeah, he's he's famous for making movies that about three quarters of the audience walks out on. <laughs> but the one quarter stays. And both parties are right. And he's said this. They're, they're, people who walk out aren't wrong, they just hate what I'm doing. And that's okay. <laughs> because they because I can see why they wouldn't like it. The current one of the current films he's working on. Is a, it's a series of murder mystery. It's a murder mystery set in an old folks' nudist home. <laughs> so it's like all these eighty-year-old naked people involved in all these weird, you know, romantic relationships, and then there's dead people. <laughs> He's having a tough time getting the funding to keep the production going. But this is a classic Greenaway movie, right? I mean, he, this, he's like, oh, this will be great, right? There's a few like, oh, naked, 80, what do we really? Is that what you want? Greenaway, that's what Greenaway wants. Uh, but so that notion that even though we disagree, I thought it was a horrible movie, you thought it was a great movie, that we, in a conversation we can realize that, hey, we're both right. Greenaway is totally, he's okay with like, look, they might make crazy movies. Of course people aren't going to like it. And discussing that might be, might be possible. Another actual conversation that came up was um, there was some statistic in the paper that you know, poverty levels are, are the worst they've been since like 1996 or something, I forget, for a while. Um, and and I, I was talking to somebody and I said, what does poverty mean? Right? Now, fortunately, it was an excellent conversation because the person was not defensive at all. Many people, when they hear that, go, oh, well, you don't care about poor people. I'm like, no, I'm not. I just, I'm like, no, I just, I'm, like, I'm in favor of poverty. Right, that's right. Let's, everybody should do that. No, I, it's, it is, the question is, when we say poverty, what do we mean by that? And, and it turns out that we couldn't figure out what the hell we meant. And so we looked at what the article was referring to a study done by the Bureau of Labor Statistics. And what they mean is just this really crude, just uh, income measure, period. And they even say, this is a bad way to measure. It says, right at the drill labor, this isn't a really good way to measure poverty, but it's just an ersatz way of measuring poverty. So if you just graduated from Princeton Law School, and you have whatever, a quarter million dollars of student's debt, and you haven't started working at your firm, you are poor in exactly the same way as uh, a single mom with three kids in inner city Detroit who hasn't had a job in 10 years and then you're going to get one because there are no jobs there. Both poor. Right? That's a really 
bad measure. And, and so, so I got pondering, you know, what does it mean to be poor? What does it mean to be poor in America? What, this whole concept of when we say poverty, what do we mean? Ah, see, it's not a bubble. You can't just fix poverty. It's good, bad, or indifferent. Hmm. Uh, it's like, well, we don't know. What is it? In fact, we now have a, a couple of friends of mine. We have a whole list of words that you can't use anymore. Uh, art, love, spiritual, nature. Because the more we try and figure out what they mean, the further we, we just decide we have no idea what these words mean. And so we just strike them. You can't use them in conversation because they just don't mean anything. Uh, they, they stop thought as much as they help in, in, impel it. But this idea, again, is what are we trying to do in conversation? If you feel comfortable with yourself, if you feel free to express yourself, and if you're with people who feel the same way, ah, now you can actually question, explore, sense nuance. Right? You, can, you have the opportunity to advance your own thinking. But again, it is a measure of freedom. What does it mean to explore? Well, it means at some level, you're willing to get lost. You're willing to say, you know, I don't know. You tell me. Maybe you've got a much better idea. I had about a, a, I don't know, we're going on about 17-year-long conversation on, a friend of mine had a cardboard box in his living room, and he had a tablecloth over it. And he said, well, this is my table. And I said, no, that's a cardboard box with a tablecloth on it. So now we're raising this question of what does it mean for something to be a table? <laughs> right? And it's been one of the most... Now, now we can't even remember exactly who was on which side to begin with. <laughs> but it, what it's been very useful for is for, for getting us to the place where we recognize that trying to define what things are is much trickier than you might think. And so now we just have to say, if we see something we don't understand what it is, we always say, oh, it's a table. <laughs> right? Because we'll say, you know, something like this. Is it a table or a desk? Defined by use. Yeah, it's got a drawer over here. And usually we don't think of tables as having drawers. Right? Is it just use? Because in one of the examples we came up with, okay, if we put a tablecloth on a corpse, does that, does that make it a table? Only if there are teacups, right? I mean, we go, you know, probably not. That probably is not. So functionality can't be the only possible definition. Well, the point of all this, we've been debating this, like I said, we, we, we don't know where we've been the entire, like everybody's been on every side of the issue, but it, what it says is it opened up this whole notion about just all kinds of things, like a word poverty. We use words like table or poverty and we think, oh, we know what they mean. Yeah. And we use them shorthand all the time. And we have to, again, it's, it's necessary. What conversation allows you to do, amongst other things, is to stop and say, well, you know, um, what, what do you mean by this? Really, let's explore that. It's not an attack on you. I'm not saying you use it wrong or right. I'm just saying, do we even understand it? Another example is you always hear this, you know, men and women, men are from, we're from Mars and women are from Venus, right? There was that great book out, great in quotes, uh, book out a while ago. But what is clear is that people often use words very differently to mean different things. 
And so we talk, I talk about one of the words that's struck, stricken from conversation is love. And so I've asked people before, if you say someone loves you, how do you know? And you get very different answers. How you know someone loves you? What are they doing, saying? How are they being that makes you feel like you were loved? And this is clearly a problem. Because if you have two people who say they love each other, but each of them thinks that what love means is something completely different, right? You see how this is going to create trouble? <laughs> right? Well, if you love me, you would wash the car. It's like, what? <laughs> If I would love you, I should write you love sonnets. I'm not reading your crappy sonnets. I want the car washed. <laughs> so what you think of as love is being received as either annoying or bizarre. And what they think of as love is being rejected and, or, or is totally absent. Right? Why is that? So people say, oh, you know, men and women can't communicate. Well, yes and no. We can't if we can't learn to converse. If we can't learn to converse with each other, then yeah, we can't communicate. Because it's obviously going to be all in the nuances, all in the subtleties, all in the richness of our, of our shared and unshared experiences. This is, this is one of those critical ideas. But again, you have to be honest. When someone says, if you think someone loves you, what do you actually expect? Not what are you supposed to expect, not what would you think would be nice to expect. What do you really want? I always tell my wife that our next wife, this, the second wife, we're going to have two, I'm going to marry one, so do the harem thing. It's going to be a, I want a 70-year-old Indian woman who cooks in the kitchen all day long and just makes like samosas and curries. Right? I've decided that is the ultimate expression of love. Right there. Like really good Indian food. You know? And, and this is this this is like this is beautiful. It's, it's, I think one of the reasons we have a hard time understanding the arranged marriage situation is in arranged marriage societies, it's defined what you do, and so status and expectations are clear. There, it, there's very limited room for debate, and so people say, "Well, does your husband love you?" And they go, oh, "Yes, because he does X, Y, and Z, and that's what it means. That is the definition. We've got it fixed. We know." And if I do what I'm supposed to do and he doesn't, he's a bastard. If he does what he's supposed to do and I don't, then I'm a bitch. But if we both do what we're supposed to do, theoretically, this is all going to work out great. It doesn't seem to be any worse or better than our system, but when you have a system where there's no definition, then you have to converse. And yet we don't. Right? We're not good at it because, again, we're worried about this. Right? We're worried about whether my status is being reinforced. My person is being reinforced. Not, I want to express myself. I want myself reinforced. Well, who are you? Well, I don't know. Right? Well, then you can't express it, and then you go in this circle. Again, it's a very difficult cycle to break out of. Uh, having said that, it's not impossible. Um, I, I, I think... If anybody read uh, Jacques Barzon, he's a French philosopher, he was in Paris salons, and then he came to the United States. He's still alive, he's like 109 or 10 or something. It's amazing. I always think he's dead, and then he puts out another book. Um, and I'm like, oh, not dead yet. Okay. Uh, but he, so he's lived to see the whole thing. But he said, he argues that a conversation is impossible in America, that you basically can't do it. And I, and I think this is wrong. I disagree with him on this. I think 
We can do it, but it just requires the elements that we've been discussing. People have to relax. They have to accept themselves, and they have to accept that the other person is not trying to abuse them, take advantage of them, achieve something, undermine them. And they have to be willing to be honest. If I'm trying to convince you of something, we can't have a conversation. If you're trying to convince me of something, we can't have a conversation. If we're trying to simply figure out who's higher on the status, you can't really have a conversation. But if we're both comfortable with who we are, even if we disagree, who cares? That's, that's all right. Because then we can explore the disagreements. We can say, well, you voted for Bush. Really, why? I mean, I really want to know. I have asked people this. You voted for Bush, yes. Why? <laughs> I'm not saying you're a bad person. I mean, I suspect you might be, but let's just put that aside. <laughs> I want to know why. And they have some very good reasons, ladies and gentlemen. We got, ooh, well, you know, I have to give them that one. I have to give them this one. Um, you know, that they're not incorrect about their reasons. Now, I may weigh things very differently. I may say, you know, that reason, we, I agree that is an accurate reason, but you've put much more weight on that than I ever would. So you're not wrong. We just disagree about the relative merits of this. Right? That sort of element of, again, allowing the other person the possibility of helping you, of knowing things that you don't know. In fact, of being able to help you understand yourself better. This is, this is the key element of conversation. And if we allow ourselves to do it, then we're back to the beginning where we have the opportunity to experience one of the great elements of humanism. Again, if you go back, beginning of the lectures, if you look at the history of these periods when humanism has flourished, it is, conversation is a key element. Uh, the tale of the Genji opens with a conversation amongst Genji and his friends. Actually, a conversation about letter writing. So it's like the perfect example. I love that. But, but it is, that it is a conversation, a real conversation. And they're talking about the kind of women they would like to date and, and who they should date and, and, and what makes and they all they, they all disagree. This is the thing. And they all make very good points. Where you're like, you read one, you go, well, that's a very nice. And then you read the next one, you go, well, that's a pretty good point. And you, and you, you realize that no, they're this notion that different people can actually disagree and, and, and yet have this rich, fulfilling, interesting exploration of concepts that in the aggregate, like the symposium, like Castiglione's The Courtier, like uh, Hume's Dialogues, create something that's much greater than if you just have a character who says, here is the truth, capital T, underlying full truth. Much richer when you go, ooh, you know, Alcibiades sort of has a point, Socrates kind of has a point. Aristophanes may have a point, but who cares? It's so funny. Um, <laughs> you know, they're all in there. And this, it, it's the richness and the fullness of the conversational experience that undergirds the humanities. Because again, it is the rare cooperative moment. It's not me in my cubicle thinking, working by myself. It's me with other people building something. It's also experimental. I can try ideas out. I can go, hey, I had this thought. And somebody says, well, you were probably drinking. Because <laughs> now that you've said it out loud, it doesn't sound very good. And you might say, yeah, you know, you're right. Or, you know, hey, that's an interesting concept. Let's go with this. And so as a trial ground, as a cooperative thing, 
It builds the intellectual and social community that allows for the humanities to flourish as a mode both of self-expression and of community building. That's conversation. Thank you.